Beyond Words Radio. I'm Richard Cohn, publisher of Beyond Words Publishing, and I'm your host for today's broadcast. I have the pleasure today of introducing you to a remarkable young man. His name is Jude Morrow. He lives in Ireland, and Jude was diagnosed early in life as a diagnosis of Asperger's type autism at age 11. And despite having uh, educational challenges, Jude progressed through secondary school and graduated from the University of Ulster with an honors degree in social work in 2012. Jude now works as a social worker. He is also a motivational speaker and an advocate for all things autism. Jude, welcome to our radio show today and to our listening audience. Thank you, Richard. Good morning. Good morning to you. Um, Jude, you are also the author of Why Does Daddy Always Look So Sad? What inspired you to write your book? Well, through my early life, I had quite a lot of challenges growing up in mainstream schools here in in Derry in the north of Ireland. Whenever I grew up, qualified as a social worker and became a dad, I had to go on a journey of my own. And I wanted to have a record of what my early life was like for my son, Ethan, who is now six. I found a lot of diaries and old notebooks that I had in my house. So I chronologized them, put them in order, and I came up with why does daddy always look so sad. First of all, I only wanted to have that record of my early life so that my son would know where his daddy came from. And when you were a a young child, did you have communication and uh, issues and social difficulties early in life? I did. I didn't develop as per the medical guidelines, so to speak. I wasn't able to walk until I was nearly a year and a half old, 18 months, 19 months or so. I had difficulty communicating with other children and everyone, for that matter. I didn't have a great variety of words, and the few words that I did have I couldn't really use appropriately. I went to different Play schools, um, preschools, and the last one I went to was a group for mixed abilities, which would have had children with ranging abilities from Down syndrome, uh, autistic kids like me, even ones with more uh, severe intellectual disabilities. That was the way the education system was at the time. I did progress somewhat in that group and that I was able to go to a mainstream school, i.e. a school not for special educational needs. Those communication difficulties, although I have a, a wide and varied vocabulary now, at times I can still struggle to find the right words and the right response to certain situations. So, yes, those communication difficulties have existed my entire life. And when you were diagnosed as uh, Asperger's type autism, um, did your parents 
did they work with you and help you? Would you attribute uh, this to helping you as you then move forward in life? Absolutely. I mean, without my parents, I would be absolutely nowhere. I would not have grown into the man I am today. I always leaned on my mother and father and sister Emily for support right the way through, through my life and even up to the, the present day. They have been my heroes and rocks and they've been tainted all the way uh, from when I was very, very small. I didn't actually know that I was autistic through my early life, through my childhood and you know, my teenage years. My parents didn't really want to have that kind of Asperger's or autistic label put on me at that time. Um, so they, they didn't want me to kind of be any different at the time, although the, the downside to that was is that I had this kind of empty feeling of why am I not like the rest of my peers. So I don't judge them for that. I don't blame them for that. I don't hold any grudges against them for not telling me at the time because just being told, Richard, I probably wouldn't have been able to cope with such a, a label at a young age because I would have had the more negative general societal view of autism and being autistic that I don't really have now. I'm proudly autistic. I tell it to everyone, scream it from the rooftops and have written it all down in a book. So, yeah, without my parents and who have been my support team and key members of my entourage for my entire life, I am indebted to them forever. That's a true blessing that you have had. And uh, I, I must say that... Uh, that I and our entire publishing team here is very, very proud of you and uh, very excited to see the upcoming release of your book. Well, thank you, Richard. That really does mean a lot. And to know that um, Beyond Words and the rest of the team can see my book and my story for what it is and, you know, to help me kind of get it out there to a much wider audience is, is something I'm incredibly grateful for and the journey ahead is, is exciting and it's getting more and more exciting every day. <laughs> it, it truly is. Um, how how do you feel that your book will be helpful to readers? I never pitched myself as being some sort of an autism expert or an autistic expert. I am simply a normal, common man that has been there, that has been through it, and hopefully can show autistic people that there is light at the end of the tunnel and that there is hope. I would love to be able to say that that was my original intention whenever the, I originally self-published the book via Amazon. But that goal now that I have to give hope to as many people as I can just happened to be a happy byproduct of the book whenever it was released. I want to be a, a voice that people can understand, and likewise, I can understand autistic people as well because I have been there. I like to think that I'm quite relatable. I mean, my story isn't remarkable in that I climbed Everest without oxygen or I swam the English Channel twice in one day or anything remarkable. It's a 
scenario that is so common to so many families, not just here in Ireland or over there in the States, but all over the world. Well, and, and that is very true. And I think the fact that, that you can be a voice that people can understand that you have been through this and you can, you truly can give hope to families who really don't know what the future is for their little ones. Um, of course, and I would like people to know that being autistic is perfectly fine. I didn't view it as perfectly fine. I didn't have this mindset when I was a teenager. I didn't even know I was autistic. I knew I was different. I didn't know the reason why at that time. Although, looking back on it now, I could have been proudly autistic then because whenever I speak to audiences locally and no matter what size the audience is, I always find that autistic kids ask me the most questions. It's never really the parents. It's never the professionals or the, 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 the medical folk. It's always the autistic kids that ask me the questions, and I absolutely love speaking with them because I wish that I had a book like mine to read whenever I was maybe 12, 13, or perhaps even younger because I always read books my whole life because even though I was autistic, but unbeknownst to me at that time, I thought even in myself, what will things be like for me whenever I go into adulthood and perhaps go to work and have a child or children of my own. And I want to have my book be something that people can take advantage from. Of course, I don't speak for every single person on the spectrum. I know that people will have much more varying and complex needs than perhaps I ever had. So I want to have my book as a template that being autistic is absolutely fine because there's so many negative societal views of autism, in particular that autism is something that needs cured and eradicated in the way that the, the plague and certain viral diseases over the, the millennia have, have come and gone. So being autistic is, for me, a gift and a different ability. And I want to spread that message as far as I can. Can you give us a few examples of um, questions that uh, come up that are answered in the book? Yes. Sorry, Richard, can you repeat the question there? Just you've faded out just slightly. Okay. I was... Uh, Wondering for our listening audience if you could give us examples of a few questions that are answered in the book. Oh, sure. Sorry, I just uh, picked that up just now. In the book, there's a lot of questions that my parents asked whenever I was growing up, being how would you manage and cope in secondary school? How would you cope and manage in university? How would you cope and manage when he becomes a parent of his own, because the parent himself, sorry, should I say. These are a lot of the questions that are asked in the book and were asked throughout my lifetime. And these are questions that I have found from meeting many, many parents of autistic kids and carers of autistic people, that these are questions that so frequently come up that there's always that looking forward mentality out of the many 
books, autistic literature that there is out there, mostly, might I add, are written by non-autistic people, but a lot of them focus really on the here and now. If you take the average adult lifespan, the average human being lifespan, which now sits at 76.4372 years, not to 18 is a small fraction of that. There are many, many more years post-18 that autistic people will have to cope with. What I am coping with right now, because I am as autistic now as I was whenever I was three years old. So the questions that do come up in the book are how will Jude cope, how will Jude manage, and those questions are answered by the support and help and guidance that I received, although I may add, I didn't receive a lot of criticism, help and support gladly at the time, although looking back at it now through slightly more mature eyes, I am grateful for the help and support that I received, and I would implore people to accept and avail of the support and advice and guidance that I was offered and initially refused for a lot of my life. You had mentioned to me that most programs that are uh, provided to per, to help with children who are autistic uh, and most support that, that comes for them, uh, that pretty much ends at age 18. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. With here, we live under the, the National Health Service umbrella. I know I have been doing some research into the health care and support system in the United States, and it is very, very similar that the vast majority of uh, government and federal funding would go towards initiatives that are aimed at autistic children and young adults under the age of 21. And it's kind of funny because I was involved with community pediatrics when I was younger and even with child and adolescent mental health services whenever I was a teenager. And whenever I was discharged from those services at the age of 18, at that time I believed, oh, being autistic is, or having autism or being different, apologies, I was actually discharged from that at 21. I felt that being autistic was something that I had left behind and that it was a childhood phase and a developmental phase that I had went through and that I had left behind. It was only whenever I learned that my son Ethan was coming along that a lot of the, um, you know, the, the autistic way of thinking and logical way that my brain is wired started to come back. And at that time, I didn't know how to positively regulate my emotions and regulate my my energy in the way that I can now and it caused me a lot of distress and discomfort and my mental health certainly suffered at that time and I just didn't really feel that there was a lot of support out there specifically for autistic adults and hopefully with my book that is something that will come up in conversation around the world that autism simply just does not end at 18. I will be, I have been and always will be autistic as, as everyone else out there who is on the spectrum with me. Uh, when you were mentioning about your son Ethan, I would imagine that uh, the structure that you had developed for yourself 
to help you deal with being autistic or just living life, that when you have a little child, um, a, a small child, every, everything is always changing. There, it's pretty hard to have structure when you have uh, have a little one. Absolutely. Whenever I was going through additional supports, especially in secondary school, a lot of it was around the kind of the planning and organizing of my days. Whenever I was going through my social work degree, I think I excelled at university because there was an independent study type structure as there is in third level education that I could organize my library time, my seminar and lecture time and assignments and examination preparation. I was able to do all of those and I was in complete control of my days and it did help me, I have to say. I can't say that it didn't, although it didn't prepare me for the uh, the, uh, the change that being a parent does. And whenever Ethan was coming along, I wanted to know absolutely everything that was happening, the entire journey and what would happen when he was born. And that forward planning aspect always came back to haunt me at that time, I think. But I wasn't really channeling my own energy positively at that time. Instead of positively preparing, I was positively preparing for the worst scenario. And I, I came to a stage, Richard, where I was making up ridiculous scenarios in my own head that never came to fruition, nor would they ever have in the real world. That's the mindset that I had at that time. And even whenever Ethan was born, Ethan was needing change at different times, eating at different times, waking up, going to sleep at different times, and I just felt that I did not have control over my day. The coping strategy that I had developed had failed me somewhat, and then after a few years of going through this and suffering in both silence and denial, it was at that time that Ethan asked my mother, why does Daddy always look so sad? And at that point I knew I had to discuss and come to terms with being autistic and use my talents and traits to my advantage. Well, that that uh, <laughs> must have been a, a, a huge wake-up call for you and also a, a big challenge. It was a huge, huge challenge. Whenever my mother told that to me, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I would love to say, and I say this at all of my stage shows, that immediately that was when I turned things around. I got help and made instantly made the world a better place. Richard, that just was not the case. Whenever my mother had said that to me, instead of immediately seeking that help, I took up running. I ran the hills and the valleys, and after completing my first marathon, all 26.2 miles of it, I had realized that I had basically ran away from my son and the fact that I was autistic for an entire year. So it was really at that stage that I knew that I needed to come to terms and make peace with being autistic if Ethan and me were going to have happy lives. 
the, the concept of narrow and repetitive interests within autistic people. It's funny. I believe if you are autistic, you are obsessed, and if you are not autistic, you are an expert. So this is something that I, I want to break down gradually is the, the notion of obsessive and repetitive behaviors. I don't understand why it's not put into the same category as a passion. All through the years, even in centuries gone by, autism and autistic people have always been there. In the same way Mount Everest was only charted for the first time in the middle of the 1840s. Autistic people, have we have always been around. We have always been here. And with modern uh, research and diagnostic techniques, the writings and diaries and accounts of the lives of both Mozart and Michelangelo would indicate that they were almost certainly autistic. Without that label... Mozart would be described as an expert in music. But if Mozart was born today and going through the education system, he probably would have been told he is obsessed with that silly piano. He is obsessed with writing music. Why is he constantly writing music and so on? In the same way that in order for Michelangelo to complete the painting on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, it took him many, many years and caused him various injuries, illnesses, and eventual blindness because he spent so much time lying on his back on a scaffold painting all of that by hand. No one, and this is, the, in both of their lifetimes, it was the, the, the 17th and 15th centuries when they both lived. There are thereabouts. I can't imagine anyone at those times saying to Michelangelo, you need to put your paintbrushes down. You are obsessed with this. You are, you know, you need to kind of come in line with everyone else. I can't imagine that ever happening. So as far as my own <laughs> obsession, I have, I have several. I have always had a deep fascination with the Titanic. I don't know why. Maybe because it was built only an hour, 90 minutes away from me in Belfast. But I've always had a deep, deep love for it. All the rivets, the decor, the styling, everything. I just love that ship to pieces. And I love ancient Egypt. And I've self-studied the lineages of the Pharaoh dynasties since maybe the 30, 30th century BC. And I just love documentaries of them putting ancient Egyptian mummies into MRI machines. Although, I will never be regarded as a Titanic expert, but I am obsessed with it. Do you see what I mean? I, I do. That it, it, it is truly fascinating, and I'm sure uh, our listeners are thinking to themselves right now, <laughs> are there things that, that I'm obsessed about or passionate about or, uh, you know, because we all we all have those traits. Yeah, and with uh, obsessions and repetitive behaviors and so on, these passions are what make the world go forward. If you go back to the very, very dawn of mankind, I am sure the caveman, obsessed with creating a spark to make fire, was never told, stop trying to make fire, stop trying to give us an easy source to cook our mammoth meat with. 
I'm sure that never happened. You know, parents these days and teachers these days simply do not know who they have in their classroom. You know, dulling their passion for chemistry, who knows, it may prevent a cure for any amount of horrible diseases. Yeah, it's it's interesting uh, when you say that about teachers and classrooms. It, it's true in all aspects of life. Um, when you're sitting on an airplane, you uh, you never know who the person is sitting beside you. Uh, the same is true for them. They have no idea uh, sitting beside you that you have the, the life history that you have and, and the skills and knowledge that you've gained. Um, so it, it's probably an opportunity for all of us to uh, to say hello to our seatmates or to those around us. Absolutely. I've become quite fond of doing that. It's something I never did. But it's nearly something so simple as what would be viewed by the wider world as a simple gesture of good manners. To me, that I have to put a bit more effort into these things. And it gives me a, a bit of a kick. It's a bit addictive, you know, trying to mix and mingle because naturally I would have been reasonably reserved other than being outgoing whenever I chose to be. I know one of our authors, uh, uh, Jude, is a man named Wally Amos. Uh, he started a cookie company called Famous Amos Cookies. And, yeah. <laughs> and whenever he would fly on a plane, uh, his greatest thrill was to be able to, to sell a copy of his book to a, a seatmate on, on the plane. You know. Yeah, I... Uh... I have a, a, a similar, I'm somewhat of the, the opposite, the famous Amos cookies, I love that, I love that, I've heard all about it, uh, given that I've become part of the Beyond Words family, I've looked up some more of uh, the, the authors in the, in the repertoire, and that is one I remember, but I'm somewhat the opposite, me and Ethan were in a fast food restaurant, and someone was reading my book, and Ethan went, oh, there's your book. There's your book, Daddy. There's your book over there. There's your book over there. Go over and say hello. Go over and say hello. And I was like, no, Ethan, I can't. I can't. I can't. Please don't say anything. And before I said the word anything, Ethan was already over, tapping the lady on the shoulder and pointing over. That's my daddy's book. That's my daddy's book. And I went bright red. And But she understood, and I signed the book, and we quickly left. So I'm trying to change that. It's a work in progress, but I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> well... It's, it's a work in progress that's going to uh, expand your horizons, I'm sure, because uh, your book is, is truly a, a resource and a gift, uh, not only for parents who have children who are autistic or high-functioning Asperger's, but also just to have a greater understanding of the human condition and how we live in life and, and who we are. Absolutely. Um, I am a huge, huge supporter of neurodiversity. I that there are neurodiverse people who have uh, different ways of functioning, different ways of reasoning, coping, and living their life. And I just want to spread far and wide as much as I can, now that I have the opportunity to, for people to know, and it doesn't specifically have to be a parent of an autistic child or an autistic person as such, it 
could be for just many, many people to realize that there are different ways of thinking and different ways of processing information and that that's not necessarily a bad thing. Jude, when we were uh, talking just uh, a minute ago, um, we were talking a little bit about uh, obsessions and uh, expertise and uh, breaking stereotypes and passion. Uh, it, it led me to, to think to myself to remember that the, really the reason that, uh, that I'm in publishing is that when I discovered publishing when, or, or when publishing discovered me, uh, I realized that I had found my passion, that uh, for me it was about uh, sourcing information and helping to disseminate that information that could help make a difference in people's lives and providing that information in ways that people wanted to receive it, whether it was as an audio book or an e-book or a written book. And uh, I just uh, truly applaud you for uh, taking the, the time to journal and taking the time to write. Um, so I'm very, very glad that you... Uh, have shared with our audience some of the obsessions that you've had. Or is it expertise? <laughs> is it obsession? Is it expertise? It depends on uh, on one's viewpoint. But nonetheless, thank you so much for for the kind words as well. It's um, I always had written for a hobby and had written for myself, had written as a means of meditation and clearing my mind. And now, hopefully, it's a passion that I can take all over the world with me, along with Ethan and everyone else I love. I'm sure that uh, that our listening audience is going to want to know how they can get in touch with you. Um, can you share a little bit about how to reach you? Absolutely. I, I, I love meeting people. I love meeting groups, schools, universities, teachers. Since the book came out, I have travel my own country uh, and soon to be San Francisco to meet various groups to talk about my experience. Um, I document a lot of it on my Facebook author page, which is just Jules Morrow Author on Facebook, J-U-D-E-M-O-R-R-O-W, Author on Facebook. I'm Jude Morrow on Instagram. I am on Twitter at Jude Morrow 10. So I have... I would describe myself as being a black belt in replies. So most people who do reach out to me do get a response. They do get a retweet or they get at least a like or a share or post it on my story. I just love meeting people like me because although I am I'm proudly autistic and I love my autistic self for who I am, there are some seldom times where it can be a bit of a lonely existence and although the groups and schools that I go to to talk to kind of ask me questions and want my advice and my perspective it's as much beneficial for me as it is for them because no matter what age Richard I get to meet autistic people like me whether they're five years old or the oldest autistic person that I've ever met was 97 years old so Every, that diverse range of people that understand me and that I understand them, I absolutely love it. I also can be reached by email at shootmorrowbooks 
at gmail.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, and that will give uh, all the information on the upcoming uh, release of the book, which is April 7th, which is not far away now that I say that, but I look at the calendar on my laptop. So for the release of uh, the book, as you know, I will be in uh, the Bay Area in San Francisco, um, meeting people, signing books, and spreading the message as far away as I can. I do have my own website as well, which is www.jutemorrow.com, and there are information uh, segments in there in relation to the book, the current pre-order links, the speaking links, and everything else that you would like to know. And if on the website there is, uh, isn't something there that you want to know, please reach out to me at all of the previous uh, links and email addresses and so on. Jude, just uh, to to go back through those links, so Facebook was Jude Morrow author, yep. right? And then Twitter, was it Jude Morrow, and is it the number 10? Or? The number 10, yep, 10. Zero. One zero. And uh, email is Jude Morrow Books at, is it Gmail? Yes, that's it. Gmail.com. And then your website, JudeMorrow.com. Yes. Perfect. As we are, this is the our last segment, um, I, I wanted to uh, ask you just, I know now you are heading to the, to the Bay Area soon, and uh, actually I learned yesterday that you'll be doing a book signing, uh, I believe, at Stanford University. Uh, yes, and I'm really excited for that, and I just want to take the time to thank you and Michelle and the rest of the team for supporting and nurturing and me through all of this. This is just a dream come true in every sense of the world, and I am so indebted to every last one of you. You have all my infinite love and gratitude forever. But yes, with Stanford, I really, really look forward to that because whenever I was doing my social work training, I read a lot of books that were released by the, um, the Stanford Faculty of Social Sciences and used a lot of their work in my own academic work. Of course, I cited correctly using the referencing system and didn't pass it off as my own, but I am really, really excited for that. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited too because I'm a Stanford alum. I was a student there in the 60s. And uh, I know that they do a lot of work around autism, and so I, I'm, I'm thrilled that they will get a chance to hear you, to, to hear the voice of a, of a man, a father who is autistic, raising a son who is non-autistic. I think it'll be a, a valuable experience, not only for you, but especially for the faculty and students who are there. Absolutely, because I want to be that autistic speaker that has been there, that lives with it every day, and that understands. That's what I ultimately want to be. And although I was very reserved and secretive about my autistic self for a lot of my 20s, I can't shut up about it now. So if anybody wants to talk with me about it or have me talk to them about it, absolutely, I am there. Do you think, Jude, that more people are autistic today 
or is it that people are being diagnosed because there's more information available? I think people are being diagnosed because there are more there is more information available. Being autistic, autistic people have existed all through humankind. I am sure there were some autistic Neanderthals in the same way that there is a growing body of research to show that there are autistic chimpanzees and so on. So, yeah, I think being autistic has always been there, but a greater societal acceptance and awareness has, by, uh, the byproduct of that, has, has given more uh, diagnoses. And for anyone who has received a diagnosis, I just want to tell them directly, it's not the end of the world. Things can be okay. Well, thank you so much, Jude, for sharing information about your life, information that uh, our listeners can take home and apply to their lives. Uh, we, we truly appreciate it, and, and we're thrilled that your book is coming out, Why Does Daddy Always Look So Sad? A great resource for, for everyone.
it, it truly isn't. 